time. So before someone asks, I'm going to ask you that question. That's a good question because when we check cholesterol, there are different parameters that we look into. So if your doctor has ordered a cholesterol panel or a lipid panel, it usually consists of mainly four numbers. That is total cholesterol, triglyceride, HDL or high-density lipoprotein, and LDL or low-density lipoprotein. The good cholesterol is HDL, so we try to keep it as high as possible. For women, HDL should be greater than 50, and for men, it should be greater than 40. Mm -hmm. LDL is the bad cholesterol. The newer guidelines suggest the lower the LDL, the better. So you could have an LDL of 20, that person will have much lower cardiac risk compared to somebody who is 70 or 100. But across the board, 100 has been the cutoff. So we try to keep the LDL cholesterol below 100. For those who already have underlying heart disease or stroke, the current guidelines suggest LDL below 55. So wow. it depends on what you're looking that at. So we it's have a ratio, to, right? Is that what you're saying? I mean, no, the no. ratio is different. This is an absolute okay. number of the level of the LDL cholesterol. Okay. The ratio helps you kind of classify patients depending on the risk for heart okay. disease. So if your ratio is high, you're more likely to have a cardiac event like a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. I see. So we look at ratios to estimate risk risk in those patients. So the ratio... So let, me, let me ask you this. Uh, if HDL, you said that it needs to be above 40. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens uh, for a patient that the HDL never goes uh, beyond 40? Uh, could that be considered as, as uh, normal for that person or what? Uh, even after taking medication and all these, it would just would not go, it would not budge. It is not normal to have a low HDL. Right. So if the HDL is below 40, it's not considered normal, even for any individual. So when we try to boost HDL, again, we try to implement lifestyle habits that can help you improve HDL. Eating more uh, food that's rich in omega-3 can boost your HDL. Exercising on a regular basis and losing weight can boost your HDL. If you decrease your alcohol consumption, that can improve your HDL. So trying all these different ways of improving HDL uh, should be given a shot first before starting prescription medication. And then there are prescription medications which can also help boost your HDL. And most of the times when they've implemented all these, we do see a boost in HDL. And if they really need to start a medication for another reason, if somebody has low HDL and a high LDL, they probably would benefit from taking a medication. Because a lot of trials have shown that a high LDL is the leading cause for cardiovascular problems. So if somebody has a combination of a high LDL and a low HDL, or a high LDL and a high triglyceride and a low HDL, they do benefit from taking medication. So we don't really just look at the number and everybody with a low HDL doesn't need to have a medication. So we look at the big picture and see what is their cardiovascular risk? Do they have dyslipidemia or a mixed uh, lipid problem where they have abnormalities in different levels before we start any medication. I'm actually looking. That's so strange. That, okay, I'll give you a couple, and you can just tell me what is All right, let's, so for let's, my yeah, let's LDL, study Smriti. I know. <laughs> my LDL is 85, my HDL is 78, and my triglycerides are 48. Dang. That's beautiful. You've got perfect numbers. We're going to take your blood. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just that wondering. Is, like, cool. is that good? Yeah, that's very good. Medicine. Those are all 
normal wow. level. I'm not on any medication. That's, that's awesome. Fantastic. So break it down. So her LDL is below 100. 85. Yes, yeah. her 85. LDL is below 100. Her HDL is above 50. Very and her triglyceride is below 150. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I know that I have these are good numbers yeah. and I get very paranoid because I do it and I'll tell you why because I have a very big family history of heart disease mm-hmm. like my dad in 1988 he had a, a quadruple bypass my both all, all my dad's brothers all three of them passed away with a heart attack mm-hmm. so, in, so now, now, now so that in my about case fam- what about family history yeah, what are we going to do with so if I you're do? between the age of 40 and uh, 59 mm-hmm. we can estimate your 10 year risk for a cardiovascular event okay and if your 10 year risk is more than 10 percent okay we recommend starting a medication to lower the risk. Okay. So whether it be aspirin, whether it be cholesterol-lowering medicine, so we can try to make more aggressive changes okay. to help reduce the risk. Okay. Now we have to look at an individual as an individual. You have a family history. Right. So even if you have a family history, you mentioned these are all male members who had heart disease. Actually, that's right. So when we look at the, gen- uh, the gender uh, difference in heart disease, Men are more likely to develop heart disease at a younger age than okay. women do because women have estrogen. So usually right. before menopause, we see a lower incidence of heart disease among women. About 10 years after menopause, we see that risk kind of spike quite a bit in women. Okay. So estrogen is a protective hormone for women. So that's one of the reasons why we see less heart disease among women before menopause and like you said if you had a strong family history we try to kind of break it down to see what might have been the risk there is it all just male members in the family did they all have other risk factors maybe diabetes or you know just not high cholesterol but there could be other risk factors were they smokers were they really overweight or obese so we really have to break it down to see what might have been the factor that led to heart disease in all those family members and are you likely to have heart disease because of those risk factors or not. So if you are not menopausal, if you don't have those risk factors, your 10-year risk is much lower. So I'm, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm like post-menopausal about seven years now. So I'd, I'd had hysterectomy much earlier. And then, you know, I, I, what would my guidelines for going for a stress test or an echocardiogram be, like, in my condition? I would recommend an initial evaluation by a cardiologist because of that strong family history. And, you know, the history has other aspects to it. We try to see if you take any other medication that might put you at a higher risk or certain uh, family history besides just heart disease. Is there diabetes in the family? Is there... We have to take a history of stroke, yeah, things like that. So we kind of have to get more details about your history, do a full physical exam. If you have a heart murmur or an irregular heartbeat, or if your electrocardiogram is abnormal, you will need further testing. So we're going to take a short break of 15 seconds. We're going to be back on Open Forum with Dr. Khan, cardiologist, just a few seconds. This is Open Forum. Again, I want to thank Fenil Shah, 
Fennel has been recording all our shows and then she puts them on uh, Facebook, YouTube, you name it and it's there. And people can retrieve the shows again. So thank you Fennel for doing that. And that's why I have to take this break because I think, I don't know what she does but she told me take a break. So I'll take your break. I guess the recording for an hour and then just take right. a break and then just... There you go. There you go. And folks, welcome back to Open Forum. It's uh, 5.05 now. And we're talking to Dr. Khan. We, ha- we have her here for as long as we can keep her here. <laughs> because I know they have a date tonight, both of them. So, what do you think Valentine's Day? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm wearing red because it's hot then. And yesterday yeah. was wear red day. And I was at work wearing my scrub. So, I didn't get a chance to wear red. Good. Yeah, oh, okay. wearing so, red so, red so well, you're looking red lovely. Lovely in red. red, red. Thank you. Jagat is wearing red as well. Jagat is wearing red as well. Jagat is wearing red as well. So, getting down to cholesterol. The reason... And I opened this topic about cholesterol is, again, folks are very scared to uh, start cholesterol medicine as there are side effects. In your experience, what kind of side effects do people see and how often do you then take them off the medicine, if any? The most common um, medication prescribed for treating high cholesterol is a statin. So you might have heard of different names like atorvastatin, rosvastatin, simvastatin, pravastatin, right. goes on and on. Yeah. So statin is the most common medication used and one of the most common side effects of statin, even though the side effect is actually a rare side effect, but among the side effects, the common side effect is that of muscle aches and pains or myalgias. Mm-hmm. It usually happens when a statin is started at a moderate intensity or a high intensity dose. If patients take it during morning or during the day hours instead of bedtime, when we prescribe a statin, we do recommend patients taking it at bedtime because after bedtime, you're going to bed. Mm-hmm. You're not moving around, so there's less likelihood of developing muscle aches and pains if you're resting. That's one of the main reasons why it's prescribed to be taken at bedtime. Hydration is very important as well. Those who get dehydrated are more likely to develop muscle aches and pains after starting a statin. And a lot of adults don't drink enough water on a daily basis. So increase your water intake if you're not taking enough water. Also try to avoid other medications that can increase those risk of side effects when you start a statin. So if somebody is taking a phenofibrate or another medication that might increase the risk of those side effects, you try to stop one of those medications when you implement a statin. So there's less likelihood of developing those side effects. And if there are side effects, the first approach should be to reduce the dose instead of stopping completely. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at any medication, all medications have potential side effects. No medication is free of a side effect. Every medication has a potential side effect. Some patients might be able to overcome these side effects after being on the medication for a few days. So do not Give up on the medication just after taking it once or twice. Try to take the medication, monitor those side effects, try to take a statin at bedtime, increase your hydration, and avoid doing any strenuous physical activity when you start a statin. When a statin is prescribed, is mainly to lower the cholesterol, reduce your cardiac risk. And immediately patients believe they need to exercise, lose weight, eat healthy, they hit the gym, mm-hmm. they start working out aggressively. So those habits can increase the risk of side effects, muscle aches and pains when you start working out. When you just started a statin, it's not a good idea to do strenuous activity. Start slow and build up so that you can see if the side effect is really due to a statin or not. And then there are 
food items like grapefruit, which should be avoided when you start a statin. There are some other medications that should be either avoided. Alcohol should not be consumed uh, in excess when you start a statin. So these are all small things that we try to uh, educate patients uh, so that they can avoid side effects. And if they do have side effects, we try to either reduce the dose or change the statin. And uh, that approach has usually worked instead of discontinuing or stopping the statin altogether. Some of this, uh, some of the new newer medications uh, for lowering cholesterol, the shots that we, uh, you know, now prescribe, do they have lesser side effects as far as the muscle pain is concerned? Or yes, they do. So there are injectable medications. They're broadly grouped into PCSK9 inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So these are newer medications that can be taken either once in two weeks or once in four weeks. And often these are prescribed in patients either who have familial hypercholesterolemia, so they have very high cholesterol levels, and statin alone might not be effective in lowering those levels. Mm -hmm. Or if patients have had inadequate response to a statin and they have underlying heart disease, if they've had a heart attack or stents or bypass surgery or they've had a stroke, then these are high-risk patients to begin with. So if their cholesterol levels are not optimized just with a statin or other oral medications, then we usually prescribe these injectable medicines that are more efficient in lowering that LDL cholesterol and with fewer side effects. Yeah, You know, uh, one of the things that we want our listeners to understand is when you do have coronary artery disease, uh, as the arteries, it's like a tree, it's a vasculature tree. Following that, is it quite prudent to make sure the other arteries are patterned, for example, in your neck or your leg? So just to give an example, I had a patient who had never seen a doctor for, say, about 20 years. Desi guy. Desi So he came to my office. This is about three, four years. I'm not taking his name. Right. If he's listening, he knows who he is. But I'm not going to reveal a name, obviously, so it's, there's no HIPAA violation. But this is education I'm going to you know, impart to people who are listening. He comes to me. He's probably in his 70s already at that time. Full-time worker. He's still working full-time. No smoking, no alcohol, pure vegetarian. Pure, you know, Bhagwan Kaadmi, like, you know, comes to me because he wants a referral to a podiatrist. I'm like, yes, sir, uh, why do you need... He's saying, when I walk, it hurts a lot in my feet. I said, can I examine you? He said, no, no, I just need a referral and then I'm leaving. I said, no, we don't give referrals. We are not clerks out here. Let me examine you. This man had the most severe peripheral arterial disease, PAD, that I'd ever seen in my life. I've not seen anyone like that. He had hardly any pulse. His feet were cold, and I'm like, dude, <laughs> you need a cardiologist right now. You don't need a podiatrist. Yeah. And that gentleman yeah. is alive today because he because his foot was hurting. And he he had a he's already had a bypass. He's had both his carotids cleaned out, and his legs we haven't cleaned yet yeah. because he started walking, and he improved his own circulation. And we got everything under control. And thank God he's doing fantastic. It's been three years now. Yeah. My reason for saying that is people just rely, they look at the heart and say, okay, I had a bypass, and then they don't go back to the doctor ever. Precisely the point, because people, they know about the coronary problems and heart disease and uh, bypass, coronary bypass and heart transplant. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to carotid arteritis, Mm -hmm. I mean arteries, in all of a sudden, not too many people really are aware of it that, hey, this could be a life-threatening problem. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and it, it, as a matter of fact, it happened to a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and the, you know, he went to a doctor, and doctor said, uh, says, uh, "Did you ever get it checked?" 
And he says, no, I never got it checked. So they finally checked his carotid. Mm-hmm. And both both the side, it was 50% block. Yeah. And so now he's on medication at this time. Wow. And, you know, they're monitoring it on Definitely, a quarterly yeah. basis yeah. now. So what I'd like Dr. Khan, who's a cardiologist, uh, as a guest today in our studio. And if you do want to talk to her, it's one eight 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 seven four nine. 1035, that's our studio number. Can you give us a little bit more about these peripheral arteries that also get blocked by same people who've had bypass or a stent? We've got to watch out for the others also. Give us a little uh, insight into that, please. The mechanism behind all these problems is the same, atherosclerosis. That's when cholesterol builds up in the blood vessel and narrows the blood vessel and leads to poor blood flow distally. If it happens in the heart, it leads to coronary artery disease, there's a higher risk for heart attack. If it happens in the carotid arteries, which are arteries in the neck that supply brain Mm -hmm. blood flow, it can cause stroke if there is a significant blockage. Likewise, if it affects the severe blockage in the artery, you could lose that organ. So that's how a lot of patients end up with amputation in their toes or they lose their foot because of poor circulation in their legs, the arterial circulation. I see. Venous circulation can cause problems like leg swelling or edema, can cause appearance of varicose veins and large veins that you can see on the surface of the skin, uh, changes in the skin texture or color, a lot of discoloration in the lower part of the legs, ankles, feet, those are all symptoms of vein disease. And one in four adults have vein disease. Mm-hmm. And cardiologists can treat vein disease as well as arterial disease. So just a level of suspicion can kind of open up, uh, you know, the um, problem. Problems, mm-hmm. I see. And uh, cardiologists do a lot of invasive procedures. I know you actually do non-invasive cardiology, right? I am minimally invasive, so I do all the diagnostic procedures for coronaries. Mm -hmm. I do not do stents. So that is done by an interventional cardiologist. So stenting and structural problems like aortic stenosis are treated by interventional cardiologists. So I do all the diagnostic and initial uh, procedures, like the heart catheterization and so forth. I also do vein 
treatments yeah, where we treat vein you, disease. Yeah. So, so I do vein ablations at the oh, you clinic. You do do that. Yes. In the yeah. clinic itself, yes. yeah. yeah. And, you know, talking about the, uh, you see a lot of patients and Jagat, some of them may be your friends when they say that, hey, look, when I keep my feet down like that, they become purple. But when I keep them up like that, they become right. back to normal. That is where those that peripheral venous difference of arterial right. diseases, and there are, I mean, it can be treated yeah. by, yeah. Uh, you know, procedures and other modalities that can be used. You had some question, you say? No, no, no question. I was just wondering, oh. you're talking about lower extremities and you're talking about it. And uh, recently I heard that someone had a lower extremities thrombosis mm-hmm. uh, without having any other uh, illnesses. Right. So I was just wondering if, if any one of you can talk about it because he was operated subsequently, but he did not survive. Okay. So, so it is a venous thrombosis you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, I mean, there are risk yeah. factors. and doc- uh, venous like, thrombosis, She's our guest. Yeah. She's going to talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Venous thrombosis, uh, you know, what you're probably referring to is a deep venous thrombosis or DVT, mm-hmm. which can sometimes be complicated. If there is an extensive DVT in the lower extremity, it can break or embolize and go into the lungs. Exactly. And that leads to pulmonary embolism. So depending on how large the thrombosis or blood clot is, and depending on how much has embolized, it can cause complications even sudden cardiac death because if there is a clot that goes more proximally or upstream and blocks the pulmonary artery which is the artery that carries blood to the lungs if it blocks it completely that can lead to sudden collapse Mm -hmm. and sudden right heart failure so that can lead to death but it's very rare most of the DVTs don't embolize unless it's more proximal so if it's in the common femoral vein or more proximal in the sense upper leg, whereas uh, DVTs in the lower leg usually tend to be localized. They don't tend to embolize as much. And if the burden of the thrombosis or clot is high, uh, which means there's an extensive blood clot, that's also more likely to embolize. And there are risk factors like a prolonged sitting. If somebody took a long flight to, let's say, India, you know, that's... Okay, so, I'm that so you can try to prevent a DVT by just following some simple measures, making sure, you know, you walk, get up and walk from, you know, get up from your seat and walk a little bit, even a couple of minutes. Uh, will go a long way. So just get up every hour and walk on the flight or make sure you're doing some sitting exercises to kind of help with the circulation in your legs. Wear compression socks, which can help reduce the pooling of blood in those veins that can also help reduce the risk of clotting. And it's nice that you give us all those uh, advices because a lot of people now are going to start traveling to India. This man is going in three days. She's going in four weeks. And I'm going to be an open forum. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so it's very important that people do understand that, yeah, long flights Absolutely. are dangerous. Absolutely. Uh, uh, it, it, do you advise taking aspirin before or after? No, it's not even... Uh, no, aspirin is not indicated. Okay. We do recommend blood thinners in those who have high risk, high risk of thrombosis. Yeah. So okay. if somebody has had multiple episodes of right. thrombosis in the past or if they have high risk conditions like cancer or certain conditions like lupus where they're more prone yeah. to develop blood clots we might give them prophylactic dose okay. of a blood thinner shot, the shot or the pill or either the pill the pill okay so yeah now it's amazing how much of those pills have come into action you now. can also give the shot the so yeah. lovinox shot yeah. can be used uh, for prophylaxis as well but it's easier to take a pill than take a shot take so shot. Yeah. more yeah. often we prescribe the pill pill uh, someone texted me out here saying that what is, he was told he has pulmonary hypertension. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Educate us in lay terms. I know it's 
Very complicated. Pulmonary hypertension is elevation in the pressure in the pulmonary vessels. So these are vessels that go in and out of the lungs. So there could be pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a vessel that comes from the heart into the lungs, and the pulmonary veins that carry the oxygenated blood after it carries the blood from the lungs, it goes back to the heart. So if the pressures in these vessels are abnormal, we call that pulmonary hypertension. It can happen due to... Uh, other conditions like congestive heart failure, if somebody has left heart failure where the left side of the heart is not pumping well, that can lead to secondary hypertension or pul secondary pulmonary hypertension. So determining if somebody has pulmonary hypertension, again, when we do a physical exam, if we hear a loud heart sound or a heart murmur, we have to they have that suspicion that this patient might have pulmonary hypertension. Or if they've been on some medications in the past, like fentermine, which was used for weight loss. So if somebody has that history, then we would suspect that they have pulmonary hypertension. If they have lung conditions, severe emphysema, COPD, or lung fibrosis, they're more OS likely to develop OSA, sleep yeah. apnea. So these are all conditions. If they have that in the history, if they have an abnormal physical exam, we suspect pulmonary hypertension. We can initially do an echocardiogram or ultrasound of the heart, which can help us gauge what the pulmonary arterial pressure would be. And then if the pulmonary arterial pressure is elevated, we can pursue our diagnostic workup with a right heart catheterization, where we put a catheter into the right side of the heart and the pulmonary artery to check the pressures and uh, determine if that patient indeed has pulmonary hypertension. And Fantastic. And, and this treatment. And, and, and prescribed medication. And untreated, yes. it can be deadly, yes. obviously. Next question. Why are people texting me these questions? I don't understand. You are so popular. I am so popular. <laughs> <laughs> Our number is 1-888-749-1035. They're shy, I think. Yeah. So someone asked... Um, what is the difference between, it's, it's, obviously he's not a medical person, so I, it's a good question, I think. When does a doctor tell a person whether you need a bypass surgery versus TENS? Can you explain to our listeners out there? When an angiogram is performed, we look at the coronary vessels and determine uh, where the blockage is, how severe the blockage uh, looks like, and if it is amenable to either stenting or bypass surgery. So if somebody has multiple blockages, that increase the risk of stenting. When we stent somebody, we expose them to the contrast used, mm -hmm. and we have to give them blood thinners mm -hmm. uh, for a longer period of time. All these factors have to be considered, and if their anatomy is not amenable to a stent, and if they have multiple blockages, often we recommend bypass surgery. Now, some patients, especially if they are diabetic, studies have shown that bypass surgery patients do better rather than multiple stents. So, depending on the patient profile, depending on the anatomy, where the blockage lies and how severe the blockage looks like, if they have good distal targets uh, and they might be a good candidate for surgery, we pursue surgery. Okay. Super. Let's listen to uh, this young lady out here who has a question. Thank you for calling Open Forum, ma'am. Go ahead, please. Yeah, and then put the radio off. Put your radio off, madam. Because I'm listening to my own voice and I don't like my voice too much. Thank you. Now, up ask a question, but the radio is closed. Please. Here, a little volume. Please. Go ahead, please. Yes. Uh, uh, Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. I'm a procardia for many years. And three times, 30 milligrams, three times daily. 
और उससे मेरे पैरों पे स्वेलिंग थी तो डॉक्टर ने आर्टरी चेक की तो ठीक थी लेकिन वेंस जब चेक की तो उसने बताया कि लेफ्ट लेग में वेंस जो है वो मेरी सही नहीं है तो मैंने प्रेशर सॉक्स पहन लिए और मेरे हार्ट में एक स्टैंड भी है पंद्रह फिफ्टीन ईयर्स से और मैं प्रोकार्डिया थर्टी मिलीग्राम थ्री टाइम्स और टोप्रॉल फिफ्टी चॉइस और और एस्प्रिन और लिपिटॉर ट्वेंटी मिलीग्राम मैडम आपका क्वेश्चन क्या है लेकिन आप आप तो पूरा हिस्ट्री बता रहे हैं यहाँ क्वेश्चन बताइए आपका क्या मैडम मुझे माफ करना मैंने आपसे आपको थोड़ा ये बोल दिया लेकिन क्वेश्चन करेंगे तो फिर आंसर भी आ जाएगा जल्दी जी क्वेश्चन मेरा ये है कि मेरी नेक में भी अर्थराइटिस है तो उससे भी बरसों पहले मेरे हाथ में दर्द हुआ था लेकिन अब फिर मेरी नेक और हाथ में राइट हैंड में दर्द होता है अभी आपने कहा ना कि टेस्ट करना चाहिए नेक और और हैंड को भी हैंड की वेंस और नेक की वेंस को भी चेक करना चाहिए नहीं आपको आर्थराइटिस आपको आर्थराइटिस का प्रॉब्लम है तो आप दूसरे डॉक्टर को दिखाना चाहिए आपको रोमेटोलॉजिस्ट को दिखाना चाहिए आर्थराइटिस तो बहुत पहले नेक में मेरे एक्सरे में आया था लेकिन उसके बाद वो फिजिकल थेरेपी से ठीक हो गया था लेकिन अब मेरे फिर कभी कभी मेरे दर्द होता है नेक में और फिर वो पूरे हाथ में राइट हैंड में फैल जाता है उंगलियों तक आ जाता है और फिर खुद बखुद डिसअपियर हो जाता है तो क्या ये कोई जो पैरों पैर में तो वेंस मेरी ठीक नहीं है तो क्या ये हाथ में भी हो सकता है और नेक में अभी कहा ना आपने नहीं आपके पैर में जो प्रॉब्लम हो रही है वो अलग है और आपके हाथ में जो प्रॉब्लम हो रही है वो दूसरी प्रॉब्लम है आपको आर्थराइटिस नेक में आर्थराइटिस होने से कभी कभी सर्विकल स्पाइन के प्रॉब्लम से आपको पेन हो सकता है हाथ में उसको ब्रेडिकुलरपथिक कहते हैं एंड इफ यू हैव अ पिंच्ड नर्व दैट्स कमिंग फ्रॉम द नेक एरिया वो दर्द आपको हाथ तक हो सकता है तो वो बट इट इज नॉट बट इट इज नॉट बिकॉज ऑफ द वेन प्रॉब्लम इन नहीं वो वेन का प्रॉब्लम नहीं है वेन का प्रॉब्लम ज्यादातर पैरों में होता है हाथ में हो सकता है लेकिन आप जो डिस्क्राइब कर रहे हैं वो वेन का प्रॉब्लम नहीं है अगर आपके वेन्स में ब्लॉकेज हो ना हाथ पे भी तो बहुत सूजन हो जाती है बहुत ही बड़ी ज्यादा सूजन हो जाती है जैसे पैरों में भी हो जाती है इसीलिए डॉक्टर खान कह रहे हैं ना आपको लगता है कि वेन का नहीं है आपकी आर्थराइटिस जो है आपकी उम्र की है अठारह साल की तो होंगे आप आपकी आवाज ऐसे लग रहा है जी मैं 84 चलो 84 एटी फोर की है ना तो एटी फोर तक तो लोगों को और आर्थराइटिस होने के बाद थोड़े जो नर्व आपकी जो नस निकलती है जिसको नर्व कहते हैं नस तो नहीं कहते नर्व कहते हैं वो कभी कभी पिंच हो चुकी है दबा देती है वो दब जाते हैं तो उसके दबने से आपको टिंगलिंग और नंगनस हाथ पे आता है हाथ पे कभी कभी झुनझुनी के जैसे होता है कि नहीं कभी कभी आपको आप जब भी कॉफी पीते हैं कभी कभी टिंगलिंग होता है ना टिंगलिंग वगैरह मुझे नहीं होती लेकिन रात को मैं राइट हैंड की तरफ से करवट से सो भी नहीं सकती हाँ आपको ना अपने जो रेगुलर आपका जो रेगुलर आपका जो रेगुलर डॉक्टर है उनसे आप सलाह लीजिए कोई एक्सरे कोई एमआरआई वगैरह करा के फिर थोड़ा जांच करने के बाद पता लगेगा कि क्या हो रहा है लेकिन डॉक्टर खान का कहना सही है ये लग रहा है की आर्थराइटिस से आपको ये तकलीफ हो रही है तो हम मैं आपका शुक्रिया अदा करना चाहता हूं कि आपने फोन किया और काफी अच्छा प्रश्न पूछा मैं अभी दूसरे 
ہمارے جناب ہیں ان سے ایک ان کے طرف جاتا ہوں وہ بھی فون پہ بہت ٹائم سے کھڑے ہیں بیٹھے ہیں انتظار کر رہے ہیں تھینک یو ویری مچ ڈاکٹر خان کا فون نمبر بھی مجھے بتا دیجیے گا وہ تو ڈاکٹر خان خود بتائیں گے ابھی فون نمبر ہے اور آپ کہاں سے کال کر رہے ہیں کیا حال آپ کا جناب میں ٹھیک تھا وہ بھائی صاحب ویری گڈ پروگرام تھینک یو ویری مچ تھینک یو فار کمنگ آن آن ایئر ایجوکیٹنگ میں تو آدھا ڈاکٹر ہو گیا ہوں مجھے لگ رہا ہے آپ کے بولنے سے میں کہنے والا تو آپ تو پونے ڈاکٹر ہو بھائی آدھا کہاں سے نیچے ڈسکاؤنٹ لے لیا کیا دیسی کا بتائیے کیا آپ کے کیا رائے اور کیا کوشچن There are certain patients in the family, within the family, I'm just going to be very ambiguous mm-hmm. uh, question. Sure. Uh, you know, have, you know, one family member has tents and, he, you know, they put on blood thinners and after some time they're taken off somewhere. Hmm. But the other family member, you know, you know same, almost similar age, uh, not much, you know, within that age. And then, he, you know, he or she has, they put the stent in there, but But they would never take that person off the, the blood thinner. I mean, the genes are same, it's same family members, so that's, uh, I know the doctors knows best, but uh, just a general question, because blood thinners are, are, are really, you know, very, uh, like, I don't want to say dangerous, but it, it has its own problems. Yeah, Chhatriwala sahab, you do this, now we have a question that we have understood. I think your question is, what are the guidelines for blood thinners in people who have stent or car, car, uh, cardiac disease, coronary artery disease? So, you open your chest and open it a little bit so that it doesn't come out and we give you an answer to this. My follow-up question is about the, uh, the uh, what do you call statins. Some, yes. You know, uh, the high doses of statin are necessary or, or you know, you, you would say you're taking 10 or 15. 
um, how to treat patients with certain conditions, like if they have a stent or if they have other types of heart disease. But when we actually sit down to treat a patient, we have to customize the treatment for that patient. So you could have two siblings in the same family who might have had similar problems and had stents, but one is still on two blood thinners, one is not. So it could vary. Now, the guidelines do recommend that after stent, we give two blood thinners for at least 6 to 12 months. And nowadays, we use a drug-eluting stent, which is a stent that is coated with a medication to prevent blood clot. So, the guideline says that we have to give two blood thinners. Usually, it is aspirin and another blood thinner like ticagrelor, which is also called Brolinta. Uh, or effient or prasigrel. So these are the other blood thinners that we combine with aspirin and we usually recommend 6 to 12 months. Now, depending on where that stent was placed, if that stent was placed in a very proximal artery, for example, the, the you know, commonly called widow maker of the heart is the left Nelly. anterior descending artery, which is a major artery in the heart because it supplies blood to a large part of the heart muscle. So if the stent was placed in the proximal part of that artery, that's a high-risk lesion. So if that stent gets blocked again, that could lead to a massive heart attack. Or let's say if the patient's had ongoing symptoms of chest pain and they had an abnormal stress test or they already had a second heart attack after having the stent placed, they might need to stay on two blood thinners for the rest of their life. If somebody had a stent in one artery, but the other arteries also have disease, but not significant enough to put another stent. So they have disease that might be 50% or 60% in other arteries, but they only needed stent in one artery, which was severely blocked. These patients might also need two blood thinners to reduce their risk of getting another second stent in the future. So it depends on where the stent was placed, whether it was a high-risk lesion, if the stent was placed in the left main artery, as the name suggests, it's a main mm. artery. If somebody got a stent in the left main, that is a very critical artery which cannot get blocked at all. So depending on all these factors, we usually recommend patients to stay on two blood thinners. Now, if they've already had a complication like an instant thrombosis, so that's the condition where somebody develops a blood clot in the stent after the initial stent was placed. These patients might end up needing to stay on blood thinners for the rest of their life because they might have come off one blood thinner and developed the instant mm -hmm. thrombosis or they might have missed a few doses and developed right. the thrombosis. So there are scenarios where you might have to take two blood thinners for the rest of your life. But often patients who do well, they maintain good cholesterol, good blood pressure, good uh, blood sugar control. They have no ongoing symptoms of chest pain or angina and uh, they have been having normal stress tests after the stent was placed, they might just stay on a baby aspirin for the rest of their life. Great question. Wow. wow. And the second question was about the statin. Yes. So if somebody has had a stent placed or they've had bypass surgery or they've had a stroke due to blockage in the carotids, so if they have had a high-risk condition to begin with, then the target to treat the LDL should be below 55. So when we start a medication in those patients, we usually start with a high-intensity statin, and these are either rosuvastatin or atorvastatin. So for rosuvastatin, the maximum dose is 40. So we start at 20, and for atorvastatin, the maximum dose is 80, so we start at 40. And we try to recheck the cholesterol blood work three months after starting the statin to see if the levels are now optimal. Mm -hmm. If they're not optimal, then we increase the statin dose. So we try to maximize the statin first to 
lower the LDL cholesterol. In spite of increasing the statin, if the LDL is still not well at the target level or if they have side effects and you're unable to increase the statin, then we add more medications. We can add oral medications like uh, Zetia or we can add injectable medications like the PCSK9 inhibitors. So we try to add more medications to optimize the LDL levels in order to reduce the risk for a second heart attack or a second stroke. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and that was Shatriwala's great question. Yeah. Jasmine, uh, you're talking about the two uh, uh, blood thinner, uh, depending upon the condition of a patient. But if you take, if you prescribe two blood thinners, and all of a sudden, if someone has a bruise, either in the leg or in the hand area, because the blood is so thin at that time, all of a sudden that would turn into bluish thing. So if that is the condition happens, how do you treat that then? Do you take uh, the patient up this, uh, the uh, one blood thinner or you continue or there is any other treatment? So we always look at the risk-benefit ratio. The risk of taking a blood thinner is that you can bleed. If you cut or bruise easily, you're going to bleed more. If you don't take a blood thinner, you might clot more easily. So we always have to weigh the risk-benefit. If the benefits overweigh the risk, we continue the blood thinner. Usually for external bleeding, like a small cut or a small bruise on the hand or the leg, you might bleed a little bit more, but that bleeding is not going to lead to serious problems where you might low, drop your blood pressure or you become suddenly acutely anemic and become hypovolemic where you lose so much blood. So if it is minor bleeding or minor bruising, yes, the discoloration might kind of be scary. Your hand might turn purple, especially in older folks where your skin is very fragile. You can see a lot of ecchymosis or discoloration, but that is not going to lead to serious problems. And that will go away in a matter of few weeks. But if it is an internal bleeding, if somebody has a stomach ulcer or, uh, you know, they fell and hit their head and they bled in their brain, those are all more serious. So an internal bleeding can be more serious, and in those conditions, we might have to stop the blood thinner until the bleeding resolves. So if somebody has a stomach ulcer and they're vomiting blood, that's an emergency. They have to go to the hospital, and we try to stop the bleeding ulcer and resume the blood thinner. Yeah, that's the biggest dilemma. You know, the minor ones, the skin and all. Yeah, I mean... You, it, if somebody fell and hit their head and it had a, is, an intracranial bleed, that is they have a nightmare probably have for to all of us. have a yeah. surgery to stop that bleeding. Yeah. Then we resume the blood thinner, especially if that stent was placed within the first three to six months. Because if, uh, if that stent was placed in a major artery and that stent closes, then that can lead to a major heart attack, which right. could lead to death. Yeah. Folks, you're listening to Open Forum. We're just having a fantastic... What a, what a productive two-hour show we are having today. Uh, there are certain people call. You he, can you hear those things? Can you all please call instead of texting me? one eight 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 seven four nine one zero three five. The question that the next person was, he said, can, can you have a talk about tachycardia, meaning, uh, you know, increased heart rate? So I think what he's talking about is some people will come to us and say, I was doing Tachycardia means elevated heart rate. So normal heart rate is between 60 and 100 by definition. So anything that's over 100 is tachycardia. Now, not all tachycardia is abnormal. You can have normal tachycardia when you're exercising. So that is 
when that's normal. It, you should have elevation in your heart rate when you exercise, which is a normal physiological change in, in the hemodynamics. So your heart rate goes up when you exercise. And also blood pressure goes up when you exercise. But the, the better aspect of it is when you exercise regularly, you have a baseline heart rate and blood pressure that is lower compared to somebody who doesn't exercise. Mm-hmm. So exercise does raise your heart rate and blood pressure. So just yeah. to... Uh, clarify that. So tachycardia can be physiological. If somebody is pregnant, a pregnant woman tends to have tachycardia. Their heart rate might be in the 100s or 110s. But that is again physiological for that pregnancy. Now it can also be a sign of an underlying problem. Sometimes patients who are significantly anemic might become tachycardic. It's not that they have a heart problem, but the heart is trying to compensate for the anemia. Mm-hmm. So the heart rate goes up. If somebody has a thyroid problem, they might have elevated heart rate. The heart might be perfectly fine. So we really have to know what might be causing the tachycardia. Is it physiological or is it being caused by an underlying problem like anemia or thyroid problem? Now, heart problems can also cause tachycardia. If somebody is having a heart attack, they might have chest pain and they might also feel like their heart is racing. And that is not normal because they are having a heart attack and that needs to be taken care of immediately. Otherwise, that person might die from a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So it has to be considered in in the right circumstance. If somebody is having symptoms of chest pain, they're feeling cold sweats, nauseous, and they feel their heart is racing, that, that could suggest that they're having a heart attack. They need to go to the emergency room. If they're just sitting, let's say they're sitting or watching TV or laying down and they feel like their heart rate is very high, they check their pulse and it's 150 or mm-hmm. higher, that's not normal. Then that could be due to a sudden onset so of tachycardia. The ER should because, yeah. should warn you that something's wrong and uh, seek help. I mean, you talked about atrial fibrillation, which is a very common thing. Do you want to give us a little bit more insight into yes. how y'all diagnose that and how it's treatable? Yes. So atrial fibrillation. Because that's a very common thing. You hear yes. about it in a lot of people. Atrial fibrillation is uh, probably the most common arrhythmia that we see and it's often seen in those who are older but can also happen in young individuals um, predominantly seen in those who are over 65 it can affect men and women but women tend to have a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation than men do and there are other factors that can also increase your risk for atrial fibrillation a young individual who has thyroid problems like hyperthyroidism can develop atrial fibrillation or somebody who went on an alcohol binge like on a weekend could suddenly develop atrial fibrillation or somebody who's abusing drugs like cocaine can have atrial fibrillation so we can see it in different age groups Mm -hmm. but across the board we usually see it in older folks it's an irregularly irregular rhythm so if you feel your pulse it'll be all over the place it's usually rapid unless you are already taking medications that keep your heart rate down Mm -hmm. so if you're taking medications for blood pressure like beta blockers and metoprolol you might not really feel like your heart is racing or you have a fast pulse but your pulse will be irregular so a good physical assessment, even sometimes you can have symptoms where you feel your heartbeat is irregular, you're feeling out of breath or a little uneasy in your chest. Uh, you can feel lightheaded if the heart rate is very high. Uh, so these are all common symptoms. And again, sleep apnea is also another underlying factor that can increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. And uh, some patients don't even have any symptoms. They might just feel very tired and fatigued. So if you have these symptoms, uh, if you feel your pulse is irregular, see a doctor, they can 
do a physical, check your pulse, do an electrocardiogram or ECG, and it will be evident if somebody has atrial fibrillation. Sometimes atrial fibrillation can come and go, so it doesn't mean that you have to be in atrial fibrillation all the time. So when you have those symptoms, you might be in atrial fibrillation, and other times when you feel normal, you might have normal rhythm. So the doctor might prescribe you to have a holter monitor, which is uh, monitor to record your heart rhythm for a few days or a few weeks or even months if necessary to detect if you have these episodes that come and go. And that's called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So uh, diagnosing atrial fibrillation is actually the easy part. The treatment can be a little bit tricky depending on the patient profile. The first line of treatment is to get the heart rate under control because most of the symptoms are related to the heart rate. So we prescribe medications like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, metoprolol, cardizem. These are medications to help control your heart rate. And then the other aspect of the treatment is to prevent a stroke. So we prescribe blood thinners, especially in those who have a high risk of developing stroke. So if they already have high blood pressure, if they're a female, if they are over the age of 65 Uh, if they have diabetes or a prior history of stroke or if they have vascular disease, they have stents or bypass or peripheral arterial disease, these are considered high-risk patients to have a stroke. Mm -hmm. So those patients are also given blood thinners. If your risk for stroke is low, we recommend aspirin, but those who have a higher risk, we recommend anticoagulant. So that's when we treat patients with Xeralto or Eliquis. These are newer blood thinners or warfarin or Coumadin, which is the old blood thinner. So these blood thinners are prescribed to prevent a stroke. The third line of treatment in atrial fibrillation is to prevent them from getting AFib to begin with. So if somebody is coming in and out of AFib and every time they get AFib, they have profound symptoms. It causes functional impairment. Then we do rhythm treatment. So we give antiarrhythmic. So these are medications that we prescribe to lower the recurrence of AFib. And if the medications are ineffective, then we do procedure called an ablation. Mm -hmm. That's done with a catheter to get rid of the areas where AFib comes from. Mm -hmm. So these are the modalities of treatment and the treatment has to be customized to the patient. But most patients are started on blood thinners and a rate-controlling medication first, and then we look at how we can control the rhythm. And, and it's fascinating that so AFib... When is the time that you decide to put a pacemaker then? A pacemaker is recommended if you have a low heart rate because a pacemaker protects your heart rate from going too low. Now, some patients with atrial fibrillation can have what is called a tachybrady syndrome. Mm -hmm. So, sometimes their heart rate is very high and they're in AFib. Sometimes their heart rate is very low. Sometimes they cannot take these medications to control the heart rate because Mm -hmm. their heart rate drops really low. When we prescribe metoprolol or cardizem, the heart rate drops really low, below 40 then we cannot prescribe these medications and then they're more likely to have AFib episodes. Or if they have conduction abnormalities where they have underlying heart block, so if they have a second-degree heart block or a third-degree heart block with AFib, then these are patients who need a pacemaker. Sometimes we do pacemaker after we do an ablation called an AV nodal ablation. So right. AV node is a structure in the heart that kind of guards the upper chambers and uh, guards the bottom chambers from the upper chambers. So atrial fibrillation arises from the upper chambers called the atrium. And usually the heart rate is very high, close to 300 beats per minute. But when we check the pulse, we never see 300 beats per minute. We might see anywhere between 150 to 200 or 200. That's because the AV node filters some of those impulses that are coming from the upper chamber. So in some patients who cannot be taking these medications or who have had profound side effects and uh, they're not good candidates for an AFib ablation, we might do an AV nodal ablation and place a pacemaker. 
Isn't that fascinating? fascinating. Yeah, cardiology is a fascinating uh, subject and uh, it's such an important organ. And, uh, you know, true, very true. when, when you first met, met your uh, fiancé online, where he became your fiancé first, did he ever think uh, his heart is always going to be fixed? <laughs> I don't know. I think I have to ask him. My heart is going to be क्योंकि मैंने अपना दिल खो दिया इसको ही बस इज सेइंग दैट समथिंग लाइक कुछ ऐसा डायलॉग मारा नहीं उसने क्या नहीं इसने नहीं मारा अभी आज मारेगा वो देख रहे दिस इज अ कॉमन मिसकंसेप्शन एक्चुअली एंड बीइंग द अमेरिकन हार्ट मंथ आई आल्सो वांटेड टू से दैट यू नो अ लॉट ऑफ अस वी फील लाइक ओह हार्ट डिजीज इज नॉट गोना अफेक्ट अस वी ईट वेल वी एक्सरसाइज वी मेंटेन हेल्दी वेट नोबडी इन माय फैमिली हैज हैड अ हार्ट अटैक यू नो वी कैन बी फाइन वी आर सेफ फ्रॉम हैविंग हार्ट प्रॉब्लम्स and um i think it is important to know your heart every individual should know what their heart were you yeah. know problems are they need to get a checkup done at least once in their lifetime right. <laughs> uh, sooner than later they should have a cardiac checkup and also there is also very uh, strong emphasis on knowing cpr mm-hmm. and yep. um, being in the american heart month i do want to yes. talk a little bit about it it's so easy to yeah because you can prevent um a death uh, and it could be a loved one or a friend or you could be outside uh, in a public place and you can save a life yeah. by knowing CPR. Fantastic. So CPR is important to know it you can take a course um, either at um, Red a Cross. medical center yeah. or Red Cross yeah. and there are organizations that give you uh, those courses so it's very easy to know and CPR can be performed very easily you don't have to be a CPR certified person to provide uh and knowing cpr can save life and yeah. in fact over 600,000 people die of a cardiac arrest in this country every wow. year so if we can educate people in the community how to provide cpr i think that would help reduce right. cardiac death you know and before we take this caller out here i also want you to talk about the aeds that you see in airplanes and at the airports and is it important to have it in big institution like all the temples and mosques and churches etc because that can i've seen people you know if there was a aed they could have been living today and because that big place then aed or she's yes. going to tell us about aeds yeah. well, AED. Also, also you need to include some of the the the, the stress test as well uh, the nuclear tests uh, uh, when it what is role does it play it is not needed yeah, you okay. know uh, because the the, the stress test is not re- really going to tell you anything because it only tells you at that particular moment what it is you know would the nuclear test uh, would be a little different or would be more pro, uh, 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 informative and how best uh, the patient can take care of it themselves. and then we'll take sure. this caller go ahead please aed stands for automated uh, external defibrillator so that's the device that is used to give electrical shock so that we can save a life if somebody is having a cardiac arrest an aed can be life saving you apply those uh, aed pads on the patient's chest and you shock the heart you Uh, put the electrical shock on the heart to restore the normal heart rhythm because mm-hmm. cardiac arrest usually happens due to abnormal rhythms like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation and the patient can suddenly collapse so i think it's very important to have an aed in public places in places where there are large gatherings because um, it's it's common to see uh problem uh, problems like where patients collapse where people collapse yeah. and right. if we have aeds and know where the aeds are placed mm-hmm. it might save some lives yeah 
Peter and there are signs yeah. all over. Isn't there a public law, something like no, that? No, there's no law. No, there's no law. There's no law. Providing CPR is more important yeah. than uh, looking for an AD. So if okay. somebody collapses 100%. in front of you, because that's, that's immediate, yes. right? Like, the first thing you should make sure is, you know, to help the patient revive, revive. by giving CPR. If you can have a bystander or somebody bring the AED to you and mm-hmm. then use the AED to Later shock on. the heart, yeah. you can. Okay. But do not delay CPR trying to look for an AED. Let's take a caller here and then I have two, three other questions that people texted me. I'm going to ask you. But uh, madam, uh, you thank you. You asked a question about stress test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Let's see what she has to say. Uh, madam, jaldi uh, jaldi question puchye kya hamare paas time bilkul kam ho gaya abhi. जब से मुझे प्रोपाडिया दी गई ब्लड प्रेशर के लिए उसके उस फ्रॉम दैट टाइम आई स्टार्टेड हैविंग स्वेलिंग एंड प्रॉब्लम्स इन माय लेग्स कैन प्रोपाडिया मेक माय वेंस ब्लड्रेशर Probably. And 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 you have to talk to your physician. Don't don't discontinue the medicine unnecessarily. Just talk to your physician. Procardia, calcium channel blocker. Okay, na. Blood pressure. Blood pressure. So my job is when I procardia. Li, bilkul cheap. Rehta hai one twenty by sixty by sixty. Itna hi rehta hai. Lekin swelling pairon pe jo hai or veins pehle bhi ho gayi. Yeah. So and thirty milligram is not a very heavy dose anyway. But you should consult your physician and and uh, and we'll. लेकिन खुद ब खुद मत करना अपने डॉक्टर के साथ सलाह करके करना द क्वेश्चन जो आया था मुझे टेक्स्ट मैसेज में ये ये इंसान कह रहा था मुझे कॉरनरी आर्टरी डिजीज है बहुत कंट्रोल में है बट ही इज गोइंग टू माचू पीचू ऑक्सीजन बड़ी लो होती है उधर उन इन लोगों का क्या करना चाहिए ऐसे पेशेंट्स का माचू पीचू जाना ही है उसने ऐसे मत बोलना कि टिकट कैंसिल कर जा सकते हैं लेकिन आप एक कार्डियोलॉजिस्ट को देखें एंड जस्ट गेट एन इनिशियल चेकअप मेक श्योर एवरीथिंग इज ओके बिफोर यू टेक ऑन दैट ट्रिप शुड दे कैरी ऑक्सीजन और यूजली दे हैव व्हेन यू वेंट टू माचू पिचू दे डू गिव यू देखो हम गरीब लोग हैं हमें माचू पिचू पता ही नहीं कहां है दे यू यू कैन लिटरली गो एंड गो टू एनी शॉप एंड दे विल दे विल और दे यू डोंट नीड प्रिस्क्रिप्शन एनीथिंग नो दे डोंट रियली ऑक्सीजन लिया तो you yeah. carry it with you, you huh carry it with you if yeah. if there are no other problems no lung problems no anemia polycythemia mm-hmm. none of that and just heart disease and it's been very stable you don't need it then yeah. you don't need oxygen you you yeah, don't I, have any problem yeah i but tell my know, patient I, to I take diamox carry that and personally i had that problem even though i don't have any issues mm-hmm. with heart or anything but i went to machu picchu yeah uh and all of a sudden right there when i was climbing those uh,
आप क्या कह रहे थे The simplest one is a plain treadmill where a patient would walk on the treadmill to reach a certain target heart rate while their EKG is being monitored. And we look for certain changes on the EKG and the hemodynamic response. If it's abnormal, that would be a strong indicator of underlying coronary artery disease. Mm-hmm. 